Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, my co-host Andy Corley and I are joined by Dr. Eric Topol to discuss how the use of digital tools and AI can lead us to more individualized medicine and how we can synonymously embrace technological advancements and provide a more empathetic approach with patients. Coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm your host, Dr. Blake Williamson, and I'm really excited to have the one and only Andy Corley here as my co-host for the next three episodes of the podcast. And today, Andy has cooked something up that is truly exceptional and going to be of great value to all of our doctors listening across all the different platforms. He's got uh, a wonderful guest uh, here today, Dr. Eric Topol, who uh, needs no introduction, uh, but I am going to do a, a quick, a brief blurb and then let Andy take it away. Uh, Dr. Topol, for those who don't know, first and foremost, is a cardiologist at Scripps Clinic in California. He's the founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, a professor of molecular medicine there as well. He's published over 1,200 peer-reviewed articles with uh, 280,000 citations in the literature, making him one of the top 10 most cited physician researchers in all of medicine. His principal scientific focus has been on genomics and using digital tools to create individualized medicine. And uh, to that end, he was awarded uh, over $200 million grant from the NIH to lead a portion of their precision medicine initiative. And Andy, if that wasn't enough, he's also the author of three best-selling books. That's right. And I met Eric the hard way uh, as a patient. So Eric has authored three books, but the two we want to talk about right now is The Creative Destruction of Medicine, published in 2012. Hard to believe it's been almost 10 years, Eric. And the uh, chumpeteered is the word I recall from that one. We're going to talk about that. And the patient will see you now, which I love the, prov- the uh, provocative nature of that title. Both foretold of changes technology would bring to healthcare. I highly recommend that you read both. Eric, great to see you. Great let's, to be with start, you. let's start yeah. with a quote from your first book, The Creative Destruction of Medicine. The quote is from Voltaire about 250 years ago. Doctors prescribe medicines of which they know little, to cure diseases of which they know less, and human beings of which they know nothing. Eric, has anything changed? And (laughs) and give us a couple of examples of hits and misses that you prognosticated in the creative destruction of medicine, which I mentioned is about 10 years old. Yeah, well, Andy, that quote is probably always going to be uh, applicable because we have to have humility in medicine. I mean, I best exemplify during the pandemic where we had this new disease. We'd never seen it before. And we've had a basically on the job training. You know, at first we were using ventilators and, you know, endotracheal innovation much too much. And people were getting hurt unknowingly, unwittingly. 
And so we're always uh, have a reinforcement of needing humility in medicine uh, that we do have potential in the future uh, with deep information data on each person, not just at a moment in time, but uh, long data, longitudinal data uh, and, and wide broad data. But we may emerge someday where we'll do far better. But these days we still make lots of mistakes. And we've got 25 million serious medical errors a year in the United States. People don't like to fess up about it, but it's real. And uh, we got to do better. Yeah, the humility value is applicable throughout life completely, right? That's uh, wonderful to hear you say that. Blake? You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, in, in reading uh, some of the books and, and, and watching some of the presentations that you've given uh, over the years is, is it's always fascinated me the misconception that physicians have with artificial intelligence and what that actually means in terms of our ability to still touch lives, our ability to still participate in the patient process. Because we think about AI as kind of replacing doctors, right? But really what you're saying is it's the opposite, that AI is going to give us an opportunity to bring that humanistic value back to the patients uh, in the interest of, by giving us more time, basically, which we don't have now. And I think a lot of physicians are still confused about that. Well, Blake, you're bringing up the, the real central tenet of um, deep medicine, the, the more recent book from a couple of years ago, uh, how we can make AI um, get medicine back and capture the, the, the essentiality, the human aspect of it, uh, the gift of time. So my go-to favorite ophthalmologist actually is Pierce Keene uh, at Moorfields in the UK. I don't know if you know him, but he's a gem and he's a young guy, but he's lighting the world on fire with AI. And I visited him because um, I got to know him when I was doing the review of the National Health Service. Uh, so the government commissioned me to do that. And I had a team of like 50 people across every discipline. And that's when I got to meet Pierce, and he did an OCT exam on my uh, eyes. And, you know, I never had that done. We don't do that routinely in the U.S. Of course, it is in the U.K. Every, every citizen gets that as part of their care. And uh, it became evident to me that uh, how ophthalmology would be one of the first specialties transformed by AI. And helping that was the realization that if I show a retinal fundus picture to the international ophthalmologic retinal experts and ask, is that a male or a female retina? The answer that we get from the retina specialist is 50% accuracy, but we can train deep neural networks to get 97% accuracy. So if we want to get accuracy, you know, we keep talking about precision medicine. Well, it's real precise if you keep making the same mistake over and over again. Yeah, uh, we need freaking accurate medicine, which we don't have. So the point is, is that all of us as physicians can benefit from leaning on machines because machines see things that humans don't see. And I use that retina fundus picture as an example, but you know, we've already seen how OCT can be interpreted by deep neural networks to triage, help ophthalmologists. Uh, but what's a striking thing to me and I think the, the uh, people in the eye world don't get yet is that the retina 
is a gateway to like the whole human body. Uh, Pierce is working on Al's eye as a understanding Alzheimer's disease diagnosis progression. We've recently seen how it is the window to the hepatobiliary system, no less kidney disease, uh, tracking diabetes, tracking blood pressure. I mean, it's extraordinary. And, it and is. so, yeah, the fact that you could actually see um, live macrophages, cells through the retina as part of the exam because of the deep learning of fluorescence-free, label-free to see cells, a key inflammatory cell. So we're just at the beginning of the AI world. And if people think, if doctors think they could do this stuff without help of machines, then they don't get it. It's the fusion of effort between ophthalmologists and algorithms. They're gonna take us to a new place we've never been before. And that's exciting. Yeah, Andy, you've uh, the man versus machine. I've talked to you about yeah, that. Yeah. It's really complimentary, though. It's not man versus. I think in the eye world, measuring is clearly going to the machine is very rapidly. I mean, Blake is already. I mean, why don't you give an example of what's changed during COVID for you, Blake? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this the other day. I'm actually doing virtual uh, cataract evaluations, and I'm doing the entire evaluation virtually. I'll be in Hawaii giving a lecture this week, but I'm going to be doing uh, you know, cataract evaluations where I'm seeing the topography, I'm seeing the wide field fundus image, I'm seeing the OCT, I'm even getting a digital slit lamp exam where I can see the cataract, see the anterior chamber of the eye, and then I'm having a quick Zoom call with the patient to discuss their cataract uh, IOL, you know, the lens options. So really, I'm doing the whole thing, and I'm meeting them on the day of surgery just to shake their hand, but it's really a formality. Yeah, that's yeah. great. How, how, how do they get their exam part done? So we have a, a, I use this thing right here. I just use my iPhone. We pop it on the, a, a slit lamp holder and they can do the, the, the full anterior segment exam. You know, I wow. do take a, I do take a peek at it on the day of surgery just to make the patients more comfortable, honestly, but we get remarkable accuracy with that. So the, they can do a self exam, send you the pictures. Well, I have a technician uh, doing oh, it for me here. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. No, that's great. I, the future eventually is going to be doing a lot of the exam through person's own phone. We just have to get adapted to that. But, you know, that's where we're headed. What, what often is missed here is it's not just making the doctor's lives better, that is more accurate, quicker, um, but also the things that we can do on the patient side. Because we already have seen things like skin lesions and urinary tract infections and heart rhythm abnormalities and ear infections in children that's being democratized through smartphone diagnostics. And I'm waiting for the smartphone to help us make um, eye diagnoses whereby without a technician. Now, the first step for that was the diabetic retinopathy um, uh, prospective trial. One of the, even the first prospective trial that you can now get in supermarkets uh, in many places with um, uh, IDX. And, uh, you know, that's the first front runner, but eventually, the fact that half of diabetics don't ever get screened for diabetic retinopathy, and it's uh, extraordinarily um, preventable cause of blindness is amazing to me still. So we haven't had the reach to get to people to do the screening, and that's just one example. Um, and we don't, those, those machines right now are proprietary, expensive. We need to get it to a smartphone uh, 
someday. Hopefully you can do that. And that's and, well underway, Eric. That's well underway. Yeah. You're happy to know that's that's going down the track. It's uh, amazing. The technology can measure the distances from the eyes to the phone. It's just amazing. So that will happen. There's no doubt. But I, I'm back to your fusion. That yeah. Was, that was the word that caught my, because as humans, uh, the data is the data. But somebody, you know, when you're going in for a surgery, a cataract surgery or heart surgery, you want that reassurance from another human. Maybe that's just in style for the next 20 to 50 years. Maybe eventually you won't care. My kids, they don't care to talk to a travel agent. They could go to Bangladesh and they don't, they can do it all on their phone. I need to talk to somebody if I'm going to Bangladesh. That's because you wear old though. That's, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so, I mean, really, uh, the fusion, the second half of the fusion, will anybody care in the future? Uh, radiologist, uh, Blake was giving me some stats on mistakes versus accuracy. I'll take the machine right now. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, is anybody going to care about any of this? As a well, human I mean, I, I, okay, I think the most important thing that people don't realize is, I think you're alluding to it, um, you, the, 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 the doctor and the patient relationship which is really what medicine's all about, has been eroding for decades and it's, it's collapsed. And so the idea that, um, you know, the, you know, the doctor's really looking after you and cares about you, um, you know, this is something that is uh, rare these days. Now, you know, I think across medicine, not just obviously in one discipline. The fact that you could get time back so that you can actually spend time talking to a patient, connecting, and this this form of you know empathy, communication, and deep medicine. People want that now. Maybe young people, you know, they'd rather not have human contact. Just do it all <laughs> through electrons, you know. But when they're sick, because they they feel immortal, right? But when they get sick, they want to know the doctor's got their back, and that's I think you know the issue here. So. Um, we need to get that back. I mean, back in the 70s, when I, as an old codger, old, old dog, you know, I was finishing up med school, the relationship was precious then. Um, you know, we, we didn't have any electronic health records. We didn't have relative value units. We just had sit down time, good exam time. And, you know, we didn't just interrupt the patient in eight seconds. We actually listened to them. And that's what we got to get back to is, you know, letting patients tell their story and express their concerns. And uh, obviously a lot of people, their vision is the most important thing in their life. And they want that to be, they want to know everything about that. They don't want to be rushed. They don't want to feel like they're in a factory mill. And, um, you know, they're going to be helped by having machine support for their clinicians. Yeah, I tell you, as a busy cataract surgeon, you know, some days I'm doing 30 to 40 cataract surgeries in a row. Wow. Um, and I don't even get to meet with the patient sometimes. And so I hate that aspect of it. So what I do personally is that th that evening when I get home from work, I personally call every single one of them. And I don't care if I have to make 40 phone calls. I take an hour and a half or more and make 40 phone calls, just those two or three yeah. minutes to let them know I care. And it's one of the most important things that I do. Um, and patients love it. And, you know, one thing that you just said that, that, that kind of made me think about this is, you know, I've heard you talk about how the patient-centered approach, that, that first appeared in the literature in 1969. 
You know, one, yeah. of, the, one of the most famous uh, paintings in all of medicine is The Doctor by Luke Files. Which, <laughs> it hangs in the Tate right now in London. That was painted in 1891. And, and we're so much about the future and futurism. But don't we need to be looking to the past in order to figure out how to better serve patients? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you really hit the nail on the head there, Blake. Uh, that painting is the most painting, famous painting in medicine. And uh, it is the doctor is gazing to the sick child and uh, totally connected. And you can just see the empathy exudes from the painting, right? We don't have that now. We have a doctor looking at a, a screen, typing on a keyboard with their back to the patient and in very few minutes or time. I commend you for calling all the patients. I mean, that's great. We need that. And ideally, you know, we can even do better where you can do that when you have time with them, not even just, you know, having a call. I think it's fantastic. But I can just imagine how patients love that because they get roughed up so much. I've been roughed up as a patient. That's why you know, it really stimulated me to write deep medicine because I don't want to have everyone continue to get roughed up and have this distant, vacuous, you know, lack of relationship. It's really unsettling where medicine has degraded. And it isn't just the U.S. I, when I did the NHS review, I mean, it's a global problem. And let me also get to the point that the burnout in medicine is attributable to that we can't provide care, which is why we went into this profession. And so in order to get us back to where we are, you know, many will not go to your extent of calling each patient of 30 or 40 patients you operated on. But in order to get back to feeling like you're providing care, um, that's how we can squelch the burnout issue in some respect. I mean, we gotta, we gotta do this because we're, we've lost the mission, we lost our ability to execute the mission. And that would bring uh, some of some of my ophthalmology colleagues long for the local respect that the, the medical profession used to have in the local market, right? The doctor was the man or lady in town. And uh, my, my mother ran a doctor's office in a small town. And, you know, this doctor would sit and listen as long as it took, Eric. She, you know, sometimes till eight or nine o'clock at night, they seeing the list of patients. So this, this empathetic approach, I think, is something that our listeners on this podcast are going to go home and learn as much about AI and other things as they can, as fast as they can, to get back to have more time for that service of others that they got into medicine in the first place for. So Yeah, I mean, exactly. The, the idea that doctors would be threatened by AI is uh, total hooey, it's, as, as Joe Biden would say, malarkey. I mean, it's just completely nuts. This is going to make life better for everyone. And it is, it's a rescue mission. It's coming along at the right time. It is early. But to give credit to the ophthalmologists, they've basically been leading the charge. There's more high-quality studies done in ophthalmology, you know, than any other specialty at this point. So, um, you know, I, I'm impressed that um, we have you to show, the, show us the way. The uh, eye community really can uh, take us forward. And I, you know, the whole idea that you can have help to pr predict when to intervene for age-related macular degeneration and to prevent blindness and, you know, all the, basically every area that I, uh, within ophthalmology, whether it's glaucoma or, or whether it's, you know, causes a visual acuity loss I've, that I've seen have been approached with AI, really high quality research. It's very impressive. 
What do you think doctors are worried about it just because the name? What about just changing the name? Call it something else, you know? Well, there's been some futzing around with that, like augmented intelligence and deep learning. Uh, deep learning. Yeah, deep learning. I like deep learning. I like, I think that does it well. Um, the point is, is uh, you know, it's basically machine eyes. You know, it's, it's seeing and processing the pixels that we can. Because we, you know, if we each had 100,000 images, to look at, to get trained, we're never going to get there. This is this is where we have complementary skills. But do you think the AI is ever going to talk to a patient and tell the patient how much he or she cares? The AI doesn't have a uh, he or she, but no, that's our humanistic talent. And let's start, you know, getting that synergy going. And again, it's still very early. I mean, you know, we're we're only a few years into this whole um, movement and it'll take a, you know, a while really getting to become the norm of medicine. Okay, so let's change the channel now. Let's go over to 24 month horizon. Eric, what as a result of COVID, what are the changes you see in virtual medicine that are permanent? Well, telemedicine is, you know, is here to stay. Um, and I think it was amazing because when I wrote the book Back in 2012, you know, the prediction was telemedicine is going to get, um, you know, anchoring. <laughs> it took the pandemic for that to happen. <laughs> Finally, people realized, hey, you know what? Never, never miss to... a good, never miss a good pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah, right. It, you know, if you can't have, uh, you know, um, can't be together, you have to have physical distancing. Uh, we got to, we got to, you know, care for patients. Uh, oh, I guess we're going to have to do that damn telemedicine. <laughs> But I think what we learned, uh, you know, is that you can do a lot of routine things. You can't do the really serious stuff, you know, like a, a patient. I mean, you, you don't want to new new cancer diagnosis or, you know, serious matters. You, you need to be in person. But a lot of routine stuff um, can be done. And I think what we've learned is it's much more efficient. The patients love it. They don't have to, you know, drive somewhere and wait in a waiting room for an hour, which is the average time. Uh, also, it takes three weeks to get a primary care appointment in the United States, and it's a lot quicker to get it through a telemedicine console. So I think the best model is that hybrid of telemedicine with your doctor that you have a relationship with. And if we get a, a new steady state like that, rather than, you know, some uh, cameo doctor that you never are going to see again, um, which isn't ideal, so that we basically have two types of care, the, the serious things you come in, you're seen physically, but they're limited. And so many things are, are shunted over to telemedicine. We're going to see more of that because right now it's still a video chat. So if a patient's showing Blake, you know, their pictures of their eye findings, that's, that's fine. But what about when we have sensors and all sorts of data that can be in real time transmitted during the visit? And not only that, but the physical exam, like I can do an ultrasound of any part of my body through a smartphone, high quality, as good as a quality as you get in a, in a clinic or a hospital. Wait till the consumer does that with AI, where it tells them move the probe, you know, clockwise up, and you have an image of a kidney or a liver or the heart, the lungs, just the whole body, you know, so... That's well, I, remember, I, remember, I remember I took my EKG with you in 2012 on the back of your phone. Right. Yeah. You said, you, want, you, said you want a copy of it? I said, sure. <laughs> Boom. You sent it to me. That was cool. 
<laughs> yeah, well, people, you know, you know, I I've done a stress test, you know, multi-lead stress test uh, on my phone, at home, right on my, you know, bicycle. Yeah. That's where things are headed. So telemedicine is going to get enriched with data capture and algorithms by patients. So it won't just be a video chat like it is now where, oh, here's a rash. What do you think, doc? That's about as good as it gets. It's going to be different. It's going to get better and it's going to help further decompress the workload of, of doctors and nurses, nurse clinicians, practitioners, and it's going to make life easier for patients or parents. Yeah, I've heard you mention, um, you, you referenced earlier that the 12 million misdiagnoses every year in the United States and with radiologists alone, it's like 30% false negatives. We talked about that earlier. That's the only specialty, and I know you get asked this a lot, but that's the only specialty where I, I just kind of, I don't see their role 30, 40, 50 years from now. Every other specialty that AI is working in, I, I, I see it like with ophthalmology. Yeah, you can diagnose all kinds of things in the retina, but I still have to see the patient, right? I, I still get yeah. to treat them. Radiologists, a lot of times, aren't they're doing it remotely anyway. I just, how, how, what's, I don't know what their role is going to be down the line whenever, when we know that this is so much better than what they're reading. You know, I don't see well, how they're, you know, they're I, part I, it. I wrote a chapter about that uh, in the book and I started thinking just like you did about where it's headed. And I actually think there's a lot of room for radiologists to come alive. So they, they, the ones who are not teleradiologists, which are, you know, a subgroup, but most of them are reading scans in the basement of the hospital or, you know, where they work or clinic, right? In the dark, and they never see the patient or rarely see the patient. Well, guess what? A lot of them would like to see the patient. And I gave my experience of, you know, when I asked to see the radiologist, you know, it, it, and found out that radiologist was thrilled to have me come into the dark room and, and show me, you know, my, my scans or my patient scans. Now, what radiologist could be a gatekeeper all right, so there's too many damn scans done in this country. We are scan crazy, scan mania here. And radiologists could prevent a lot of radiation that's unnecessarily applied, no less the cost. So they know which scans can help. Also, you know, the AI is unlikely to integrate the scan with that person, all their electronic health record data and their lab data and their, you know, their, all their other data. So you still need a, a human oversight and you don't want to make a call about, you know, some horrific thing. You don't want an algorithm to do that. So I don't see where radiologists are going away. I think they're going to, they're going to change their phenotype. They're going to get more human connected. They're going to get more in, involved in gatekeeping functions, which is going to help all of us by decreasing unnecessary scans. And I think their profession is going to get more vibrant. And uh, that's where I see it going. Andy, Andy, in these last last uh, four minutes that we have here, did you want to wrap up with any any last questions well, or just, comments? I just want to say, Eric, what an amazing career you've had and what an impact you've had. And we just so appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts with the iWorld. Last thought, our last social media, I, I think you have, you, you were telling me about Twitter 15 years ago and I didn't really know what it was. I think it's helped make a lot of reputations, good and bad in this world. What do you tell the new, uh, new doctor in town? How do they use social media to establish their brand or, or become what they want to be professionally? And what, what's your advice? Do it yourself, hire somebody else to do it. 
Just oh, no, no, don't don't hire someone else to do it. You that's the last thing you want to do is entrust somebody. I recommend Twitter to all physicians. The reason I say that is it's very um, I mean, it's really ideal for help keeping up in a field. So if you are following, if you're an ophthalmologist and you're following the leaders who are posting good quality content, links to content or impressions about this or that, you're going to get faster information and higher quality than you'll ever get elsewhere. And, um, you know, I think it's really, if everybody did this, shared what they read and, you know, did that in a balanced way, um, we'd all get smarter, faster. So right now we still have the minority of physicians on Twitter. Twitter's not going away, folks. I mean, it's going to be, it's here to stay. And it's, it's clearly validated itself as an important science and medical platform. It has lots of liabilities when it's used for other purposes. And I can tell you, having met Jack Dorsey, that when he and his three friends were in that bar in San Francisco, and they thought it was going to be, you know, I took a leak put on Twitter, they had no idea that it would wind up being a useful science and medical um, communication conduit. So I see it as that, and I'm actually very big on it. Yes, I get a lot of, you know, um, trolls and you know, stuff I have to mute or block people and, you know, whatnot, but it's worth it because the net benefit I learn and I share what I read. And I hope we all would do that. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, this has been a, a great episode and uh, Andy, uh, it's gonna be hard to top this one. Uh, we got two more left with you as co-host, man. This is fantastic. And uh, Dr. Topol, you know, I, I heard you share once this quote from Antonio DeLeave in the Lancet where it said, Machines will not replace physicians, but physicians using AI will soon replace those not using it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good one, to, a good one to end on. And we just want to thank you so much for taking your time. This is fantastic. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Blake and Andy. Thank you to Dr. Topol for joining us for this episode of Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.